from Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 5 and 6. We'll read verses 3 through 6. You may be aware that verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1 is one sentence in the Greek New Testament without any intervening mark of punctuation. So as we're looking at the doctrine of adoption, let's read together chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 6. Now, as I was saying to you, you might be aware that the uh, verses 3 through 14 are one, um, one sentence in the Greek New Testament. If you're going to try and, and read it as one sentence, I suppose you'll have to stop for deep breaths. But uh, let's read together. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Verse 3, beginning with verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved." Now, notice again, especially uh, verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Let's briefly pray. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply grateful that the New Testament reveals to us that those who are justified are also adopted into the family of God. And I pray in the few moments that we have together that we may appreciate more deeply this reality, that we may learn something of what Scripture teaches, and that it may be a beginning of our understanding these things more experientially and applying them to our hearts more fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters in the Lord, among the many remarkable attributes of the Westminster Confession of Faith is that it is the only confession that devotes an entire chapter, chapter 12, to the doctrine of adoption. The only Reformed confession that has a chapter of its own on adoption is the Westminster Confession. And in addition to that, it is expounded in the shorter and also in the larger catechisms. Surprisingly, even among Reformed theologians, some very stellar ones, this doctrine has not always been given its due. And one reason for this is that adoption has often been absorbed into the doctrine of justification without any distinction being made between justification and adoption, while some massive works on systematic theology do not talk about it at all, or if so, only sparsely. R.A. Webb, old school Presbyterian theologian of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, said that there is a sense in which, talking of adoption, it is to be the crown and glory of the entire redemptive process, the admission of sinful men through the grace of adoption into the family of God with all of the rights and privileges of sons of his house is in a lofty sense the culmination and climax of the blessings of redemption. Justification confirms the sinner as a member of the kingdom of God. 
while adoption confirms him as a member of the family of God. In neither case is there a moral transformation, but rather the bestowal of a legal status. So just as justification is the bestowal of a legal status, so also adoption is the bestowal of a legal status. Now, regeneration, how does that relate to this? Regeneration, on the other hand, re-imparts to the sinner his lost filial longings and disposition, while adoption restores his standing as a son of God. So when we ask the question as Christians, of all the wondrous, infinitely wonderful privileges that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the greatest and highest privilege of a Christian? Is it forgiveness of sins, freedom from guilt, justification? Well, who can measure any of those privileges? But in a very real place, there is one other privilege that may be regarded as the pinnacle of bestowed grace, and that greatest privilege is that a Christian is called a son or a daughter of God. So the biblical data is well served and summarized in the Westminster Assembly's um, shorter catechism when it defines adoption as adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are privileged, we are received in the number, and we have all the right to the privileges of the sons of God. Now, that definition in itself, if unpacked, requires a great deal of time and effort, and we only have a little while. And so my purpose must be somewhat modest. I cannot unpack an entire doctrine of adoption in the time that we have together. But I would like for us to understand the doctrine fundamentally and uh, with the prayer that we may marvel and wonder at the grace of adoption as we contemplate and appreciate our privileges as adopted children of God. So let's begin by highlighting for a moment the grace of adoption as we saw in those verses in the book of Ephesians. If you are God's child, it is, as with justification, a matter of God's grace and God's grace alone. The confession of faith stresses this gratuitous nature of adoption when it says, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. And so adoption is not something that we merit not something we earn, not something we produce or deserve, but is the result of God's unmerited grace to those who deserve his displeasure. Fallen in Adam, we lost in him our spiritual sonship and became rather a child of the devil. Regeneration is necessary to newly create and restore the filial feelings and relationship, but also lost through Adam's rebellion, was our legal status as son of God. And this has been renewed. This has been restored by the grace of God. So we were disinherited, and now we have an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and that will not pass away. In this status of adoption by grace, the New Testament underscores that this was according to the good pleasure of God. God's good pleasure means 
that his choice of sinners to be redeemed and adopted was totally unconstrained. So in verse 6 of this passage in Ephesians 1, it can also be translated, the grace with which he graced us. It is by predestinating grace that we are accepted in the beloved. In union with Christ, the predestinating language of the text stresses that all is traceable to his will, his sovereign good pleasure, and to his predestinating love. Therefore, when a Christian fears predestination, he is fearing the love of God. We do not object to being redeemed, called, justified, and adopted. Then how can we object to God's purposing to do so? And if we do, we are objecting to being loved by God. So let us not act as if the reason for God's existence is to convey sovereign liberty to man, refusing in our hearts to allow God to exercise his own sovereign free will, but thank God that he does exercise his sovereign free will, or we would be lost, and never would we have had our sonship restored. Now let's think for a few moments to transition to another brief topic about the background to adoption. And it would take an entire class for us to look at the Old Testament background. But you know in various places in which Israel is spoken of as God's child. And perhaps you might remember that the most tender expression of sonship in the Old Testament is a mere simile. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. But it's actually when we come to the New Testament in the Gospels that we begin to see this theme deepened. So that when the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, how astounding it was to them undoubtedly to hear him say, we have it in the Greek, pater hemon haentois urinois hagiastato taanamasu, pater hemon, our Father, behind which would have been the Aramaic Abba. Well, they knew that this was the language that the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, used in his prayer to his heavenly Father. And therefore, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you now, because of me, the unique Son, because of what I have come to achieve and accomplish, you now have the right and privilege to call my Father your Father. What depth of wonder is here. And then when we come to the Apostle Paul, the word adoption that is used in the New Testament, which is weathesia, is used only by Paul in the New Testament. I'm not suggesting that the the concept of adoption is not found in other places, but the term itself is only used by the Apostle Paul. And it is used in Galatians, Romans, and as we have seen in Ephesians, a total of five times. And in these epistles using the term, Paul seems to be utilizing familiar Roman law regarding adoption as an illustration of adopted children of God into his family. Remember that Paul was ministering in a Roman context, and each of those places, Galatia and where the church that met in Rome was and in Ephesians, that all of these places were Roman provinces. Francis Lyle, who is a Christian lawyer, barrister, I suppose, in England, has done a great deal of historical work on this. And he has argued, pointed out, that in Roman law, 
This is really wonderful. In Roman law, the adoptee was taken from a previous state and placed in a new one, and that the old debts were canceled, and that the father controlled the property, the relationships, and the rights of the newly adopted son, and that along with the promise of support and maintenance of his adopted son, the adoption took place not primarily for the good of the adopted son, but for the good of the father who desired his adoption. Now, perhaps this last point should be stressed. You can recognize in all of those things, can you not, what has happened to us in Christ Jesus. But perhaps that last point should be stressed, adoption being for the good of the adopter, in a more grand and glorious manner. God adopts us for his own glory. We are reminded that the benefits of adoption are not for ourselves ultimately, not independently of the one who adopted us, but for the glory of God. Now let's move quickly to the next topic of discussion, which is the privileges of adoption. What are your privileges as adopted sons of God? What are those realities that enable you to hold your head up in this fallen and confused and chaotic world? At this point, it is convenient to allow again the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 12 on adoption and also 18 on assurance of faith and salvation to guide us, albeit selectively, through some of these privileges. Now, among these privileges, one is that the adopted child of God has God's name put upon him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that Dr. Neely preached just today, we read, among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But now we have been brought into the family of God, and there has been a transition from wrath to grace. And we are adopted into the family of God, and God's name is placed upon believers. An adopted child takes the name of the new father. And so, Christian, we have the name of the triune God upon us in baptism, Matthew 28, 19. The adopted are protected under the name of the Lord to whom we belong, Jeremiah 14, 9. And this is at once a privilege, but also a great responsibility to have God's name upon us as adopted children of God. But also, another privilege we have is that we receive the spirit of adoption. And for this, I'm going to ask if you turn in the scriptures. We can't do a lot of turning because our time is so limited. But let's read two passages. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, He's speaking of the redemption that has come through Christ, and in verses 6 and 7. Notice how he writes. This is Galatians 4, 6. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Christ. 
So I ask you, look at verse 6. Who is it that is crying out in this passage? He sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying. Who's crying? It's the spirit, right? The spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby... Who's crying? We cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so in Galatians, the Spirit cries in intimacy that we have in our hearts. In Romans 8, we cry in intimacy, Abba, Father. The witness is concurrent. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall a thing be established. There is the witness of our own hearts, indwelt by the Spirit, crying out, Abba, Father. And there is the witness of the Spirit himself who cries out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit cries out in the fullness of his eternal relationship with the Father as the third person of the Trinity. And now he also enables us to cry out in exultant joy in all of the extremity of our need to a Father who loves us and receives us in the merit of Jesus Christ. As John L. Girardeau wrote, again, a Southern Presbyterian author, 19th century, wonderful theologian, Girardeau notes that though our own spirit bears witness to the marks of sonship, the Holy Spirit does not infer that fact. He does not proceed by argumentation. Now, what we have to do is to proceed by argumentation. We take the word, we work through the various promises of God, the Holy Spirit works within us, And we cry out in the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, in trust and confidence. The Spirit doesn't have to work through argumentation. That's his point. Girardot argues that the Holy Spirit performs personal acts and that just as an earthly father can testify to his child that he had confirmed him in his inheritance, we receive by the communion of the Holy Spirit an immediate witness to our adoption. Now, by immediate witness, this is not some kind of of, um, wild-eyed mysticism. He is not saying here, by immediate, that it is without revelation. That's not what he's saying at all. But what he is saying is, it is not fanaticism, if I may put it this way. It is not fanaticism for us as believers in times of doubt, for example, when our minds are clouded and our hearts are clouded, for that cloud to be removed like a beam of heavenly glory. What is that? That's the spirit of adoption that's at work in your heart, brothers and sisters. And though our witness varies in degrees of strength and clarity, the direct witness of the Holy Spirit is perfectly assuring, and when sadly this witness is lost by sin, it may be recovered by repentance. So, in addition, this assurance assures the believer of our final salvation. 
The Arminian says that you can know you're saved for the moment, but you cannot know that you are saved for eternity. The teaching of Holy Scripture, especially of the Apostle Paul, and especially in relation to this issue of the spirit of adoption and his witness, is that we can know that we are saved for time and eternity. And as Jurado put it so well, God loses none of his adopted children. He never saw the funeral of one of them and will never see such a funeral. And so the powerful, wonderful truth of all of this is that not only is the Spirit indwelling you through whom you cry, Abba, Father, but concurrent with your witness within your heart that is generated by the Spirit, the Spirit himself in his own mysterious and powerful way as the third person of the Trinity is crying out to the Father as well with exultant joy. This is truly wonderful. Now, in Romans 8, 26 and 27, and in Ephesians 2, 18, and in Hebrews 10, 19, which speaks of our free and bold access to God in prayer, we learn of another privilege, and that is you as a child of God have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and you are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And so let's make this very personal. Why not make use of this new acquired or grace-given privilege, this new boldness, and commune with God in prayer more often than we do, with more freedom than we do, with consistency, with joy, with exultation, no matter our circumstances, and pray without ceasing by all means, but also time alone with the Lord, with nothing but communion with God in our minds, pouring out our hearts before the throne of grace. The foundation of our boldness in prayer is adoption into the family of God. The foundation of this boldness is Christ himself who indwells us through the Spirit. And this intimacy with God is a glorious privilege that you and I have as adopted children of God so that there is more grace in the promise, said Robert Trail. There is more grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. Let me repeat that to you because it may be a, a, a great experiential qualification to some of your thinking. There is more grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. So, you know the sin and misery, you feel it deeply, you sense that you are wandering from God. There is more grace in God's promise than there is sin in you. Now, I have a remarkable example in church history, in my opinion, remarkable, of bowl praying, the kind of bowl praying that should characterize the whole-souled prayers of the adopted children of God, and it comes to us from the life of Martin Luther. On one occasion, when Luther was in the midst of the battle for the Protestant Reformation, he was on his knees praying, and you remember that Martin Luther was a great prayer warrior, and he was overheard praying by his friend Dietrich, 
who wrote a letter to some, another friend about overhearing Luther pray. Now, what I want to suggest to you, I'm going to read to you what, what Dietrich heard when he listened in on Martin Luther's prayer. What I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is this can characterize your prayer life too as an adopted child of God. This is not unique to Luther, but Luther knew this truth of adoption very deeply. So this remarkable example is this. He overheard him, and he wrote, I cannot admire enough Luther's steadfastness, his joy, his faith, and hope in these desolate days. He strengthens himself each day in his convictions by a constant application to the Word of God. Not a day passes, but he reserves three hours at least for prayer out of that portion of the day which is most suitable for work. One day I had the privilege of overhearing him pray, Great God, what a spirit, what a faith in his words. He prays with all the devotion of a man before God, but with all the confidence of a child speaking to his father. I know, said he, that thou art our good God and our Father. That is why I am persuaded that thou wilt exterminate those who persecute thy children. If thou dost not do it, the danger is to thee as much as to us. This cause is thine. What we have done, we could not have done otherwise. It is for thee, merciful Father, to protect us. When I heard him from a distance praying these words with a clear voice, my heart burned with joy within me because I was hearing him speak to God with altogether as much fervor as liberty. Above all, he supported himself so firmly upon the promises and the Psalms that he seemed fully assured that nothing he asked could fail to be accomplished. That is praying as an adopted child of God. And so, adopted children of God, you've trusted in Christ Jesus. If so, you were adopted in God's family. Come, come freely, come boldly, come in union with Christ. Come with your new name upon you, out of your new relationship with God and his people, from the depths of God's mercy and your new nature, with the new spirit who indwells you and the fullness of your new inheritance, in unshakable security, with liberty, with free access, you, child of God, come boldly into the presence of the living God in prayer because this is a privilege of your adoption into God's family. Now let me point out another couple of privileges. If you are a child of God, then you are pitied, protected, and provided for. The fatherly care of God, remember Psalm 103, as a father pities his children, so. The fatherly care and providential blessings and provisions are meant in that psalm and elsewhere, but also the provision of the word of God to you, preached, the sacraments administered, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 and other places, in the context of the worship of God. And so he pities you, he protects you. In his providence, in his provision, through his word, read and preached and proclaimed, and the sacraments administered, that's also a privilege of your adoption. 
But also, another privilege of adoption is that you are chastened by the Father, never to be cast off. Now, it's important that we put it that way. We are chastened. This is not, God is not, this is not penal. It is love. He is chastening us as children, never to be cast off, and chastens us so that we will never be cast off. Those who are truly sons of God will know the blessings of paternal correction as they stray. Psalm 3, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, that references it, speaks of the chastening work of the father for the son, in this case also the daughter, that he loves. So the same love that moved the father to send his son for you moves the father to discipline you so that you never look away from Christ. And holiness is the goal of God's chastening hand upon his children. Bridges, in his great commentary on the Proverbs, says, What does it all mean but that the Lord, holding to his determination to save us, all the thoughts of his heart, every exercise of his power, centering in this purpose of his sovereign mercy? So God's providence toward his children is not something that is mechanistic, that is to say simply mechanical, but his care of you in his providence that includes his chastening is personal, caring, and directive toward your heavenly home. It is not penal, and it is not wrathful. And then we are sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. This sealing with the Holy Spirit also is a privilege that you have as an adopted child of God. So our inheritance as children of wrath was God's displeasure and judgment. But now, in union with Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1:14 and 18. Our inheritance is both present and future. And in Romans 8, 15 through 25, we come back to the teaching of Romans 8 that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Just to illustrate this, if a Roman patrician adopted a son, that son, no matter what his birth had been or no matter what his life had been prior to his adoption, was now himself a Roman patrician. And so he may have been taken from the gutter He may have been taken from anywhere in life, no matter. He's a patrician now. So even more infinitely greater is the inheritance of the adopted child of God. And so people of God, often we are despised in the world, but the true child of God may not appear to have glorious privileges. And indeed, sometimes we may feel to see or to understand those privileges adequately ourselves. To the world, we may not look like adopted children of God, but we await the ultimate fulfillment and manifestation of our adoption on the day of resurrection. When Jesus returns, then the world will see us for sons of God by adoption that we really are, 
and the saints will understand how full and rich our adoption really is. So let us now live in the hope that awaits us. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And that promise is already a promise that you have, because in your inner being, if I may so speak, you are no more raised than you will be. Or to put it differently, you are raised as much as you will be. Your body is going to be raised, but it already because of the spirit who indwells you, is paid down. The earnest of your inheritance is the spirit of God who indwells you. So we must bring it to conclusion. I was given only a short time. But in conclusion, we who once were bound are now free and live in the liberty of the sons of God. And there are more privileges of adoption that we find in the scriptures. But John Owen said... Privileges we enjoy by Christ are great and innumerable. To insist on them in particular were work for a man's whole life, not a design to be wrapped up in a few sheets. In other words, the privileges are so vast that it's going to take you an entire lifetime to even begin to understand how rich and wonderful and numerous are the privileges that belong to you as a child of God if you will but live in that mentality. And they are too numerous to be wrapped up, he's saying, in, the, in a few leaves of a book. Now, if you will, on your own, take the Westminster Confession of Faith, because remember, it's the only Reformed confession that has its own chapter on adoption, and read chapter 12. And read what it has to say about this matter. But we also need to remember the praise of adoption. We are God's adopted children to the praise of his glorious grace. God wants to be praised by his children. This praise includes, of course, lives that are consciously lived out in the privilege of adoption. And the duties of sons also could be enumerated here. They were splendidly summarized by Gerida. What are the duties of the adopted child of God? To render honor to the Father, exercise affections due to God as Father, filial love and trust, obedience, imitation, to render honor, gratitude, and obedience to the Lord Jesus as our brother, to honor the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption, to love the Father's children, to separate from the world insofar as it is out of sympathy with God as our Father, and finally, to long toward heaven, the Father's house. Are the duties that you and I have as adopted children of God. Sinclair Ferguson once met my parents, and he met them in another context, in another church, when I was pastoring elsewhere. He had never seen us together before, but my parents came up to greet him after the service, and he said, those must be David McWilliams' parents. 
Now, how did he know that? The family resemblance. That's how he knew. And now, actually, in one of his children's books, my parents are represented in some of the children's figures that are, are there in the book because of the family resemblance. You, as an adopted child of God, are called to bear the family resemblance. And we are his chosen people, formed for himself to declare his praise. And so, according to Ephesians 1, it is all to the praise of his glory, and we must be filled with the desire to praise him.